Well, let's get back to Revelation. We had a couple weeks break from that. Now we're ready to dive right back in. This is actually lesson number 28. <laughs> so we've been doing this for a while. But just like everything else in the Bible, it takes time to study it, to understand it. Skimming over the word is not studying God's word. And remember, one of the reasons why we study this book. Revelation 1.3, we've mentioned this about every week. It said, God blesses the one who reads this prophecy to the church. That's pretty plain. And he blesses all who listen to it and obey what it says. That's pretty plain. For the time is near when these things will happen. How many feel that time is getting closer? Now, we finished up chapter 14 last time. Now we're beginning chapter 15. Let me give you a brief recap of chapter 14. That was a vision that John saw about the judgments that are going to occur in the near future in the book of Revelation, around 19, chapters 19 and 20. Chapter 15 introduces the final series of judgments of the tribulation. Those judgments begin in chapter 16, and they're an outflow of the seventh trumpet. Now, before I read Revelation 15, let's pray. Father, thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the admonition your word gives us, that we're not only to read it, but we're to do it. We're to do what it says, because that will necessitate the blessing from you. So, Father, as we study your word, help us to understand what it says is going to happen. Give us a sense of urgency for those that, that may be left behind who don't know Christ. And put that burden in us, and we want no one to be here to experience these things. Bless our time, Lord. Anoint your word. Anoint us to hear it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation 15, 1. Again, John speaking, then I saw in heaven another significant event, and it was great and marvelous. Seven angels were hurting, holding the seven last plagues, which would bring God's wrath to completion. Again, the phrase would bring, it's something that's going to happen in the future. It's not too far from there, but it's not actually happening at this moment. Chapter 16 is when these begin to dole out. And these plagues are going to complete the judgment against sins of the world. God is now giving the angels the task to dole out the plagues under Christ's direction. The angels are now messengers of judgment. Now, if you read your Bible, the Bible says they, angels are ministering spirits to those who believe. If you're protected, the angels surrounding you, I don't know if we all have personal angels, but the Bible says that angels are there to protect the saints of God. But in this instance, angels are now the messengers of God's judgment upon those who don't believe. And verse 2 says, I saw before me what seemed to be a crystal sea mixed with fire. And on it stood all the people who had been victorious over the beast and his statue and the number, number representing his name. They were holding harps that God had given them. I always wonder where the harps came from. You know, we're not, we're not going to be angels with wings flying around with harps. How many know we don't become angels, right? How many know we don't have wings? We become just people in heaven. Different body, but recognizable. We talked about that a few weeks ago, how in heaven you have a new glorified body, but people will know who you are, and you will recognize other people. So it's not going to be the angels flying around with wings, stringing the harp. But these guys have harps here for whatever reason. 
And actually, the, all the commentaries I read, actually, they all skipped over the harp thing. <laughs> no one made a comment about the harps. So, but the sea here is, is mixed with fire, which is a scene of worship. One commentary put it this way. Its imagery is suitable for depicting the majesty and brilliance of God, which the sea of glass is reflecting in a virtual symphony of color. No further symbolic significance needs to be sought here. The main focus is on those standing on the sea. Who were they? These were all those who kept the faith and did not give in to the demands of worshiping the beast. It doesn't specify if they were killed or just died naturally. I'm assuming that they died because of the can't buy food, can't buy or sell, and a lot of them were martyred. Whatever the case is, they're standing now in God's presence. They had died during the tribulation and now in God's presence, and they're in the act of worshiping God. The end of verse 2 says, the number representing his name. So instead of saying, receive the mark, which the Bible refers to a lot, it says it in a different way. It says, the number representing his name. So basically, he's saying the same thing. These are the folks who did not take the mark, who either were martyred or starved to death or died some other way, and now they're in God's presence. In verse 2, again, it says, they're all holding harps that God had given him. Almost every time there is worship, there is music and singing. I'm going to appreciate our ability to worship. And this, guess what? God provided the instruments in this case. And what were they singing? Verse 3 says, And they were singing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. How many remember the song of Moses? How many remember when that happened? Well, back in Exodus, when, they, when the Israelites were brought through the Red Sea and the Egyptian army was destroyed, Miriam led the Israelites in this song of Moses. Exodus 15.1 says, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. Verse 20 says, Then Miriam the prophet, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine and led all the women in rhythm and dance. When the Israelites were singing this song, they were singing a song of victory. God had crushed their enemies. They had drowned their enemies in the sea. Everything was over for them. They had finally won the victory from Egypt. Now these folks in, in heaven, the saints are now singing the same song because what? They're having the same victory. God is going to destroy the enemies of the church at that moment. The song of Moses also celebrates the faithfulness of God. And it's exactly what these saints are doing. They are celebrating the faithfulness of God in heaven because they're singing in verse three says, the song of the lamb. Now the lamb is obviously Christ and he is the one who brings salvation to the saints and judgment to the enemies of God's people. And we said this before. How many does, why doesn't God intervene? Why doesn't God stop some of the evil things that's going on? This is when God's going to stop it. This is when all the evil is going to be destroyed. It's not going to happen between now and then. It's going to happen at this moment. And Jesus is the one that's going to deliver it. Acts 4, 11, 12 says, For Jesus is, is the one referred to in the scriptures where it says, The stone that you built is rejected has now become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else. 
There was no other name in all of heaven for people to call on to have them saved. For people who say that Jesus never declared to be God and never, never specified that, that verse is pretty plain. It's not Buddha. It's not Muhammad. It's not anybody else. The Bible says there's no other name in heaven for people to call on to be saved. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you think you're getting there without Christ, you're not getting to heaven. Not only is Jesus the one who is saving, he is also the one who brings judgment. John 5, 22 says, and the Father leaves all judgment to his Son. Revelation 15 goes on and says, Great and marvelous are your actions, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous deeds have been revealed. As they're worshiping Jesus, their deliverer. And while they're singing the song of Moses, each of these verses that they're singing is also parts that are found in the Bible. We'll look at that real quick. Revelation 15, 3 says, Great and marvelous are your actions, Lord God Almighty. Psalm 139, verse 14 says, Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it. Amos 4, 13 says, The Lord God Almighty is his name. Verse 3, back in Revelation says, Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Well, Deuteronomy 32, 4 says, He is the rock. His work is perfect. Everything he does is just and fair. Back of Revelation 4. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? Jeremiah 10.7 says, Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? Psalm 86.9. All the nations, and you made each one, will come, before, come and bow before you. Lord, they will praise your great and holy name. What's... What's happening? Even while they're in heaven, and even while they're worshiping, they are singing the words of truth. They're singing scripture, basically, back to God. They're using truths in their songs that are already found in God's word. That tells us all the songs that we sing should have truths rooted in scripture. There's a lot of, a lot of good songs out there. And they're good songs for specials, but they're not necessarily good songs for worship. Because what we sing should be, everything we should sing should be based in scripture. It's, it's easy to want to sing something that's, it sounds good and it may be good, but it's not scripture. It's not rooted in God's word. So when we go through the songs and we're singing the songs, all the songs we're singing we try to make sure that everything that we're singing is rooted in some scripture that is backed by truth. Just because it sounds good doesn't mean it's scripture. If I sang you the lyrics to a song, I'm not gonna sing it. Um, there was a song out years ago, My Sweet Lord. How many of you older folks remember that song? If you listen to it, the first three or four verses sound like it could be a worship song. But it goes on to say, Harry Krishna in the song. I mean, in the song, George Harrison. 
You have to be careful what's in the songs you're singing. It may be a good song, but it may lead you down the wrong path. Verse 5 says, And I looked and saw the temple in heaven. God's tabernacle was thrown wide open. And that kind of leads us back to verse 1, where it says, Then I saw in heaven another significant event, and it was great and marvelous. And this is more of a detailed account of verse 1. He says it kind of plainly, I saw a great event. Now verse 5 goes into more of a detail of what he actually saw. The wording or the language used here is similar to what they used in the Old Testament, the imagery that was in the Old Testament. John saw what appeared to be the Old Testament tabernacle with the inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies. That's what he saw. In the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament, the ark had the Ten Commandments inside them in the Holy of Holies. We know that the curtain was torn in half when Jesus died. So now we have all access to, to God in an open tabernacle. So why the distinction now? Well, from your open temple, you access to the Holy of Holies. From the Holy of Holies came the seven angels with the judgments against man's sin and rejection of the word. So he sees the temple, the curtain gone, and from that Holy of Holies come these seven angels that God dispenses with judgment. And then John goes on to describe the angels. In verse 6, he says, The seven angels who were holding the bowls of the seven plagues came from the temple, clothed in spotless white linen with gold belts around their chests. Get the image. You're looking at the Old Testament tabernacle. The Holy of Holies is open for him to see. And out from this center court, this Holy of Holies, proceeds seven angels dressed in white, which indicates their spotless, sinless perfection and the gold symbolizing the glory of God. And now they come as God's messengers, not to bring salvation, not to bring encouragement, not to protect, but now to bring divine judgment on the sins and evil of the world. Can you imagine? I mean, we've already listed the the first several chapters of the Bible, what God's going to do to the earth. How much worse can it be? We talked about it earlier, the first several chapters where God was using nature to destroy the earth. And now God is using his angels and his wrath to destroy it. I wrote down here, you wonder when God's going to right every wrong. You see the evil around us and wonder, God, when are you going to fix this? Well, this is when God's going to fix it. We shouldn't be surprised when we see evil. The Bible says that the devil is the prince of the power of the air. In other words, he has power right now. God gives him limited power to do what he wants to do. And a lot of times what is happening is he's letting man have his way. When man defies God, God says, okay, here's the natural outpouring of what's going to happen when you defy God. Sin is going to happen and people are going to get hurt because of sin. And these judgments are now coming from a holy and perfect God handled by sinless angels on God's behalf. Verse 7 says, And one of the four living beings handed each of the seven angels a gold bowl filled with the terrible, terrible wrath of God who lives forever and ever. So as these angels are proceeding from the Holy of Holies, one of the four living creatures 
is handing each one of them a bowl, and each one of those bowls has God's wrath in it that they're going to pour on the earth. And one of the living beings that John saw in chapter 4 is the one who did that, John chapter, or Revelation 4, 6. In the center and around the throne were four living beings, each covered with eyes front and back. So one of these living beings is at the entrance to the Holy of Holies, and as the angels proceed out of it, he's handing each one a bowl of God's wrath. These beings were the guardians of God's throne and the representative of his creation. And it's proper that they're now handing out the bowls of wrath. The angels, angels now become agents of God's last series of judgments on those sinners who are left before Christ returns. And when Christ returns, he's going to defeat the Antichrist and all the rest of the forces of evil. You kind of want that to happen now, don't you? But how many people do we know that are going to be here for that? It's a scary thing. Your lesson was good this morning. I was glad I was able to be in it. I'll tell you, when you start praying for people, when you pray scripture, the Bible says God is long-suffering, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. So we know God's will is that nobody be here for that, right? The Bible says, pray anything according to my will and it will be done. The Bible says that we don't save anybody. Church doesn't save anybody. God's the one who saves people, right? So when we pray for those who are on that list there and those in our family and friends, we're praying according to God's will. God wants them to be saved. God is the one who saves them. So we believe that God's going to do it. And, but it might take either great things. The Bible says the goodness of God leads people to repentance. But also may take hardship. You know, the two by four upside of your head. And when we pray, it's, Lord, whatever you need to do to reach them, whatever that is, because no matter what that is, it's better than eternity in hell. And that's the mission that we have here. We will be held responsible for what we've been given. What have you done with what I've given you? Personally and as a church. That means it has to be more than just Sunday morning. It has to be a daily thing that we pray and ask God to put us in positions that we're able to talk to people. It's not always easy. It's hardly fun. But if you ask God to do it, I think he's going to do it. Revelation 15.8 says, The temple was filled with smoke from God's glory and power. God used smoke in the past to indicate the glory and, the, and his presence wherever he was. It represents the glory and holiness of God that also demands judgment be poured out on those who rebel against God in this world. Smoke and clouds in the Bible have similar meanings. Exodus 40, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle and the glorious presence of the Lord filled it. Moses was no longer able to tap, enter the tabernacle because the cloud had settled down over it. And the tabernacle was filled with the awesome glory of the Lord. 
First Kings 8.10, and the priest came out of the inner sanctuary, a cloud filled the temple of the Lord. The priests could not continue their work because the glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple. Isaiah 6.4, the glorious singing shook the temple to its foundations and its entire sanctuary was filled with smoke. So now you got this in heaven, the holy of holies, angels proceeding from it, it is now filled with smoke, clouds, which indicates the presence of God is in that place right now. The holiness of God is in that tabernacle and from his holiness is coming the judgment. The smoke shows that God is present and also shows that God is the source of the judgment being passed out by the angels. And the Bible says that God takes no, no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And we talked earlier that these judgments are not an emotional judgment. It's not God being emotionally angry. It's just you can't be in the presence of God and be sin. I, I used this example before. The moldy bread thing. You take a piece of moldy bread out of your cupboard and it's all green and stuff. And you lay it out in the direct hot sunlight. What happens to it? The mold just dries up and then just becomes powder. Not because the sun hates the mold. It's just that they can't be in the presence of the sun. And the sun, just because of its mere presence, destroys the mold. And just the presence of God is going to destroy the sin. And the smoke also makes it impossible for anyone to enter now into the Holy of Holies. Verse 8 says, No one could enter the temple until the same seven angels had completed pouring out the seven plagues. What's that mean? Well, since no one can enter, there's no more intercession for judgment. No more prayer is going to be answered. No one can intervene and stop what's going to happen. One commentary puts it this way. God has been patient and long-suffering, but now the time for these righteous judgments has come, as it must. There can be no more postponement. I'm reading through the book of Amos now. I haven't done it for a while. You ever read those minor prophets, the small ones in the, in the Old Testament? I, I remember reading through it a couple years ago and just like didn't get anything out of it and just kept reading. Well, I read it. I've been reading it this week and so. And I think God wants us to get something from that. It's only like a few chapters. Read it because it's the Old Testament version of what's happening here. Amos is warning Old Testament Israel that judgment's coming. Time is up. God's had enough. There is no more repentance. There is no more chances for Israel. And Amos is telling them exactly what's going to happen. Amos 4.11 says, I destroyed some of your cities as I destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Those of you who survived were like half-burned sticks snatched from a fire. But you still wouldn't return to me. Notice what God does to get their attention. He doesn't bless them. He pours judgment on them to get their attention. And the Bible says, you still wouldn't return to me, says the Lord. Therefore, I will bring upon you all the further disasters I have announced. Prepare to meet your God as he comes in judgment, you people of Israel. Amos 7, 8 says, and the Lord replied, I will test my people with this plumb line. I will no longer ignore all their sins. God had warned them all. The prophets were warning them, stop doing it, stop doing it. God's going to judge you, and they didn't care. 
In fact, in Amos, you, got, you had the, all the rich people and all the poor people. There's no in-between. The rich people were destroying the, they're stealing from the poor people, not giving them anything, disobeying all the law. And God says, okay, I've had enough. And what happens is God allows the Assyrians to invade and eventually wipe out the 10 tribes. There's no more 10 tribes. How many know that? They've never been restored. They've never been re redeemed yet. They will be at the end. But from that time until now, there is no 10 tribes. They're scattered everywhere. And until 1948, there was no Israel. And Jeremiah and Ezekiel had similar warnings to Israel. Shape up or God's going to judge you. And Judah gets judged by Babylon. Now they get to return, but they still had to spend 70 years in captivity. And if you read in Amos what they were going to do, they were going to put hooks in the women's mouth and drag them out like you drag animals into captivity. And all their riches and stuff that they had was going to be destroyed, just burnt to the ground. Verse 8 says, No one can enter the temple until the seven angels had completing, completed pouring out the seven plagues. No intercession until all the judgments have can be completed. I said before, we live in an age of grace now. There's going to be no grace and no mercy during this time. God has been long-suffering up to that point, but long enough. God says the time is up. When the church is raptured at the end of chapter 3, God says, okay, I'm done. I'm done with the church. I'm taking it out. And now I'm going to pour judgment on the world. Now, during that time, people will be saved. But it's going to be a lot harder, A, to get saved, and be to stay saved. Because once you do that and you ignore and you refuse the mark, we all know what's going to happen. Can't buy, can't sell, which means you can't eat. No water. And most likely you'll be martyred because they'll catch you not worshiping the beast and they'll kill you. God's given everyone chances now. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Not tomorrow. Not next week. A lot of people say, you know what, I'll get saved maybe at Easter or I'll, I'll, I'll get saved on Christmas. I'll come and get saved. There's no, there's no guarantee you're going to be here for that. The rapture could happen before then. You can die before then. Chapter 15 ends basically saying, the judgment's coming. There's nothing you can do about it. The saints that have been saved during that time are already here. So if you're still on the earth, it's going to be bad. God's wrath is going to happen and start in verse 16, in chapter 16. The Bible says, while we're still here, we have work to do. And it doesn't say we're to make converts. It says we're to make disciples. That means we have to teach. That's why we have Sunday school. That's why we have Wednesday night. Because the more you know God's word, the less chance you're going to have of being deceived by the world. And there's a lot of deception going on right now. 
And there's a lot of churches participating in the deception. And how do you know if it's true? How do you know if what we're saying is different than what they're saying? Maybe they're right. How do you know? Only one way to know. Right? What's this say? I've said it before and I know everybody else has said it. If I'm saying something that's not in here, call me on it. Because I don't, we, we said it last week. We're going to be judged harsher. I, I want to make sure that I'm doing it right. We want to be teaching all of you. God's going to say, hey, what did you teach them? Yeah, you got them saved. What did you teach them? Did you teach them to follow me? Did you teach them what my word says? That's our job. But now that you got to want to learn. When I was in college, I went to a lot of classes, but I didn't learn a lot because I just went to class, right? And left and went out doing what I was doing. A lot of people go to church and just go to church because they think that's going to do it. But you got to study it. You can't just get it on Sunday morning. How many of you are going to a Father's Day cookout today? Dads, are you cooking out today? How many of you eat just one time a week? I'm pretty sure nobody here eats one time a week. If you expect to get all of your nourishment from Sunday morning, you're eating one time a week. But when God speaks to you during your own devotional life, that's when you grow. Because what I'm saying today may not apply to everybody. We pray that it does. God's word does apply to everybody. But maybe there's something God wants to speak to you individually. That's what you get from devotional life. I've read Amos before, and like I said, I've read it and forgot what I read. This time, God's really opening up what Amos says. And so I'm like, okay, God wants me to learn this. And that's how each one of us should be when we study God's word. Get a good commentary to read with your study. Get an easy version to read. That's a good version. We want to make sure that we're prepared when this day comes. The Bible says, not all that call to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these great things? Jesus says, I don't know, I don't know who you are. It takes more than what we do. It takes understanding of God's word through what we do to accomplish what God wants to accomplish. Well, I'm going to let you out early today. Father's Day. Would you stand as we close in prayer? You're all welcome to stay around if you want. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment? You never want to take for granted that just because you sit in church that you know Christ and you've made that choice to follow him and ask him to forgive you of your sins. So that's exactly what I'm going to do now. I'm going to say if you're here and you've never really accepted Christ, you've never really asked for forgiveness of your sins because we're all sinners. The Bible says we're all sinners. We all fall short of what God's expectations are. And we can't get into heaven unless we're perfect and nobody's perfect. And the Bible says the wages of our sin is death. And that's spiritual death. In other words, you're not going to be with God when you die. But it also says the gift of God is eternal life through Christ. 
In other words, you come to the point where you realize that you're a sinner and you have nothing good in yourself to offer God. But you realize that Jesus came down to pay whatever debt you owed. He's taken the punishment that you should have taken for your sin and mine. And we have to not only just accept it in our heads, but believe it in our hearts. If you've never really come to Christ and ask him for forgiveness, today's the day to do that. I'm going to pray with you, and I'm going to lead you into God's presence. If that's you, I want you to raise your hand. All right, I'm going to believe we're all committed followers of Christ. Father, we do come to you in the name of Jesus. And we thank you for our forgiveness of sin. We thank you that we, we've been made right with you. Through no work of our own, by simply believing in what you've done for us. The sins we've committed in the past, the ones we do now, and the ones we commit in the future have all been forgiven by you. Our job is just to basically confess those things every day and accept that forgiveness. And Father, we thank you for that. We thank you, we thank you, we thank you. Not only did you save us from the sins we committed in the past, you saved us knowing all the things we would mess up in the future as well. And you still took us. And Father, we thank you for that. And we just pray that our lives are a reflection of our gratitude. That we live what we say we believe. I pray your anointing upon each person here. As we study the, the filling of the Holy Spirit this morning in Sunday school, I pray that you would fill each one of us. Your word says that we are to continually be filled. That means every day we need your filling. We need you to work through us so that we live our lives the way you want us to, under the anointing of the Spirit. And then through that anointing, Lord, I pray that you would give us divine appointments to be able to share what God's done in us with other people. Give us the words to say, the opportunity, prepare the hearts of the people we're going to meet to receive it with gladness. As we're with family today, all of us, I pray that you would give us that opportunity as well. Talk about you just in conversation about how good you've been to us and help us to lead as many people as we can to you so that nobody we know has to stay here for the tribulation. Father, I commit this church to serving you. That's our goal, Lord, to teach and to train and to win people to Christ and to worship you for who you are. Lord, we commit ourselves to you. We commit Bible says we don't make a pledge unless we mean it. So, Father, we commit ourselves to serving you. We pray that you would help us to do it the best that we can. And it's in Jesus' name we ask all these things. And God's people said, amen. 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 God bless you. Have a great Father's Day. See you Wednesday.